Uh, we've, been, um, we've been going through some, some really challenging things in Romans. We'll continue to do that. Let me, let me give a little story uh, before we get going. Uh, we've been learning hard things, and, and a lot of people are wrestling, and their brains are going. And, and let me tell you what, there's a lot of victories going on in here right now. Um, I, through the week, um, I'm hearing stories about people that, that, that may be hearing this stuff for the first time, and they walk away, and they're like, they walk out of here on Sunday, and they're just glazed, and they're just, man, I, I just don't know. I, I, and then they, they come back to me through the week, and they text me or email me. Hey, R.C., man, I, I read what you said. I went back and read the passage again. I studied it, and you're right. It's in the Bible. I, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing what you're talking about. Um, I'm an encouragement. And then other people are saying, well, man, I'm still wrestling with it. We're still talking about it with, as a family. We're still reading through it. Uh, we're not shutting down. We're going to read through this. And it's very, very encouraging to hear a lot of stories about people who are trying to understand these things. And I think the, one of the most encouraging things already got, it got here this morning. First thing, uh, first service. Uh, before I even got started, I got met by a sixth grader in the lobby. And he comes up to me, he says, listen, hey, Hey, Mr. R.C., I, I heard last week about Romans, and I walked out of here, and I didn't have a clue what you said. But you know what I did? I went home. I read Romans 9, the whole chapter, and me and my dad sat down, and we started reading it. He said, it makes sense. I see it. And I was like, yes. I mean, it, the fact that him and his dad got together to, to look at Scripture together incredible. Like, if you're doing that with your family or a small group, and you're processing and if you're running to Scripture, that's a victory. That's God's mission. That's what He wants to happen. So it, wherever you are, keep running, running, running back to the Scriptures, searching, seeking answers to the questions. Um, so that was encouraging. I just want to share that with you. It was awesome. Uh, before we get into the, the text today, let me share you, with you a little funny story about the imperfect Ford home. Uh, um, this, this makes sense to the, to the story today. We're getting into as a early on as a father. I've got I'm a father of four now, but early on as a father, uh, this is when I was not a I wasn't yet a follower of Christ. God had not saved me yet. Uh, what I did for my profession, I was a health club operator. That's what I did. Uh, so I was around the health club industry. I was I was pretty militant about the food choices of my kids. I was really healthy choices. You can't eat this. You can't eat that. And I really wanted to control all those things because I was sovereign after all at the time. Uh, so I'm trying to control what my kids are eating and all of those things uh, while I'm hiding little Debbie snack cakes in my room, of course. Uh, so I'm trying to do all those things. So I didn't really give them a lot of uh, a leeway with what they ate. Um, well, now things have changed. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a father of four. And things just change when you kind of have started having multiple kids, don't they? If you know what I'm talking about, by the third, fourth, it just, the rules just change. I mean, it just happens. Uh, so the other day, um, me and Callie are on a date, right? We're on a date. I don't, we're probably going to Dollar General or something, and that was a cool date. So we're doing that. I don't know where we're going. But my, we're, we're, we're going on this thing. It's private time, me and my wife. And then all of a sudden, phone rings. And then it's my daughter's on the phone. And they said, Dad, 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 you're not going to believe what Ryland's doing. He's my 13-year-old. You're not going to believe what he's doing. Uh, he, he just climbed on top of the refrigerator um, and he just got a bag of Fritos that y'all were hiding from him. Uh, he just cooked. And that was after he just ate 40 Totino's pizza rolls, Dad. Can you believe that? And I'm like, yeah, 
I, I do. Rylan eats everything. Okay, he's 13, and they just, he just goes crazy. He's like a squirrel in the kitchen. And I don't mean looking around for food. He's actually in the cabinets. He's pulling stuff out. He's nibbling. He's running a little squirrel. He's always eating all the time. And then now my daughters are, Dad, can you believe what Rylan's doing? He's eating 40 Totino's pizza rolls. He's got the Fritos down. Dad, what are you going to do about that? And I'm like, is that it? Is that it? I mean, what? What do you mean do? Thanks for calling. Uh, and, and they're like, are you kidding me, Dad? You never let us do this. You would never let us eat all of that food. Aren't you going to punish him? I mean, aren't you going to call Juvie or something and call him out, get him down there? And I'm just like, no. I mean, things just kind of change. And, and you know that my daughters were upset. And what do you think they said? Dad, that's not fair. Dad, that's not fair. Right? And that's what, uh, that's what Romans 9 has got many of us saying. It's not fair. That's what we're crying out, some of us, not all. It's not fair because the theme we're talking about is election. All right? And we're not talking about presidential election. I wouldn't even dare to try to describe that mess to you. Can't do it. Uh, we're talking about God's sovereign free choice of who he saves and who he does not save. All right, we've defined this word election for you, and I'm going to do that again just as a reminder. Uh, election is God's eternal choice of some individual persons unto everlasting life. Not because of unforeseen works or merit in them, but because of his mere mercy in Christ. This is the only way salvation is 100% grace. It's all God. It's all grace. And early on, um, as, a, as a young Christian, as I was wrestling through these things, um, and I would come to many passages and say, it just doesn't seem fair. I'm reading things, and I'm like, okay, I see God has mercy on this person, and he's got judgment on this person. Fair? I, I question all these things, and i just like, what is this election? It just doesn't seem fair. And let me tell you about one that really, really got me as I was studying through these things uh, like many of you, uh, the story of David, all right? The story of David, uh, David, got man after God's own heart, um, and he, he, he is an adulterer and a murderer, all right? Adulterer, murderer, all right? And he gets busted. He didn't confess. He got busted. Nathan, the prophet, pulls David in and says this. He pulls him in and says, hey, David, I got a story for you, all right? I'm paraphrasing, all right? Uh, I got a story for you. And, and David's like, hey, cool, I like stories. Tell me a story. I like to hear it. All right, Nathan says, this is man. This man slept with another man's wife. And then he had that man killed. David says, where is he? Let's kill him. Where is this man? Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. And David weeps. He breaks cries out to God for forgiveness. And what does God do? Mercy, forgiveness, God, grace. And I love that story. And you love that story. When we mess up, I run to that story. And then I come to a passage that seems to say something different. It looks like God has a different will going on here. And this is not consistent. It's in the story of Acts and 5, and it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe you know the story. And they have this big plot of land worth a lot of money. 
And they sell this plot of land and make a lot of money. And they take the money and they give 80% of it to the apostles, to the church. They keep 20% for themselves. Right? But they tell everyone that they gave it all. They lie. And what did God do to them? He killed them. Dropped them both dead on the ground. Judgment. Wrath. And I'm like... This just doesn't seem fair. Does that seem inconsistent to you? I'm sure it does. It seems very unjust. You have two people. You got one who's an adulterer and a murderer, right? And then this one just lies about keeping some money. The adulterer or the murderer gets grace and mercy. And the one that withheld money from the church is struck down dead, right? Now, both of them have been in violation of God's law. They were both guilty and deserving of God's judgment. But he gives one grace, one mercy, compassion, and he gives the other one judgment, wrath. And I wrestled with that, and I wrestled with that. And the only conclusion that I came to was individual election. It's the only thing that made sense to me when I saw this pattern of over and over again in the scriptures of God choosing some but not others when it is not merited by either thing that either party does. And it helped me greatly as I walked through that. So we're rolling out this theme of election. And many of you are like, I have never heard this before. I sat in my church or in church my whole life and I've never heard these things before. Now listen, I want to let you know, LifePoint is not innovative. We didn't come up with these things, all right? Uh, it's Obviously, it's in the Scripture, but let me tell you what it's also in. It is rooted deeply in the Baptist church, okay? And some of you are like, we're Baptists? Yes, we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention, okay? That's what we are, we're Southern Baptists. And it is deep-rooted in the Baptist teachings. Look at the, 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 uh, the uh, Philadelphia Baptist Confession of 1742. It's in there. Individual election. The New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1833. It's in there. Southern Baptist Confession of 1858. It's in there. It's in our roots. This is not new stuff. Let me tell you what's actually happened. As the gospel and the word of God had got to America... Um, it was foundational. It was true. They, they, they proclaimed the full counsel of God and they talked about election. Well, what happened was in a good intention to evangelize to the entire world, they started to water down and dilute the word of God to make it more palatable to the people so they would digest it easier. And if you want to digest God's word easier, you take election out. So it drifted away, but it was in good intentions. All right, And it just, over the past 200 years, it's drifted away. It's not talked about. right? And then what we are committed to doing at this church is going back to the foundational roots of the Bible. All right, That's what we're going to do. We're not going to woo you with music. We're not going to woo you with lighting and carpet and events. We want to teach the Bible. All right, That's what we're going to do uh, with you. And we hope that you go with us here even when it's uncool in our culture, all right? As a pastor, uh, I don't want to be cool. I want to be clear to you in the proclamation of the truth. So that's what we'll do here. 
We've laid out two foundations that I've been redundant upon. Let me remind you if you haven't been here or remind you if you have been here. Uh, Two things that really help us digest difficult things about God. As we kind of tear back the curtain, so to speak, and get a a clear picture or God starts to reveal himself more and more and more to us each week. As we do that, these, these foundational truths help us go through tough things. God is for God. I've laid that out. That, that God, in the ultimate purpose behind everything he does, is his own name. The proclamation of his own fame, his own glory throughout the world. And I want to show you how he does that, but he's also for you as well. But the motivation is God. Isaiah 43, or 48, I'm sorry, tells this better than anything. Listen to this text. For my name's sake, I defer my anger, anger towards us. For the sake of my praise... I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own name's sake. For my own name's sake. I do it for how should my name be profaned. My glory I will not give to another. So that text is incredible because it shows in there God's for you. He's refining you. He's withholding anger from you. Seems pretty for us, right? And then he says, I do it for my own name's sake, my own sake, my own glory, and I will not give glory to another. That is God. So we got to stay there and we start reading all of these things that say, this doesn't really look like it's for man, right? I thought God loved people. He's for his name. He loves his own glory more than he loves us. Keeps us rooted. Second principle, God is truth. All right, God is the truth. So whatever we read in the Bible is absolute truth. And let's look at a passage in John, 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. He's true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We have a lot of information available to us in this world. We have problems, we have issues, we have all these questions, and we have all this other information that we run to. Wikipedia, Google, inspirational quotes on Instagram. Uh, we, we run to fuzzy friends uh, who make us feel good, our feelings, and we're in constant search of what truth is. Listen, for the Christian, truth is the Bible. That's it. So it doesn't matter what you're walking through, what struggle you have, what comfort that you need, what you're walking through. God knows. And there's nothing in the Bible that is insufficient to your struggles Do not run to worldly things. Run to the truth of God's word. That's what we do. What does the Bible say? Sounds pretty generic. That's what we do. Do not run to the world. All right? We need to stay rooted there. So we're we're really testing in, in Romans the sovereignty of God. This whole thing is about God's sovereign rule over salvation. Now, we don't have a problem with God's sovereignty when it comes to creation. Created the world out of nothing, 
right? Ex nihilo. So he, he, he just spoke things and they were. Light. Moon, sun, stars. And it was. He just spoke it. He's God. He's sovereign over all of the macro things like the ocean, the sea, the wind, the waves. Macro things, sovereign. And he's even sovereign over the micro things, DNA, atomic level things. We don't have a problem with that. God, sovereign over creation, right? And then we want him to be sovereign over our life. God, give me a job. Help heal my mother, my father, my grandmother. Heal my sickness. Give me money. Give me a home. Give me a wife. Give me a husband. God, help me and my kids. Protect my kids. We are cool with that. We want God to be sovereign over those things. We want him to be sovereign over our country because we clearly don't want to leave that in the hands of men or women in the future presidential election. We want God to be sovereign over those things. God appoints kings. All right, remember that. The problem is, is when we get to this idea that God is sovereign over salvation. God, you mean God gets to choose who is saved and who is not? Now listen, we just saying, you hold it all. Do we believe that or not? God, you hold everything except my salvation. Do we believe that he holds it all? If he does hold it all, he holds salvation in his hands. And if he ceases to hold that in his hands, he ceases to be sovereign. He's not sovereign God anymore. So we are testing these things. And here's why we kick back against God choosing. First of all, in our inherent rebellious, sinful nature that we got from Adam, we want to take credit for something that God did. I know God did his part. I know the cross and yeah, but I did my part. Right? And then we go around saying things like, I made a lot of changes in my life. I go to church now. I didn't used to go to church. I don't even cuss anymore. I stopped getting drunk on the weekends. I read my Bible. I made a lot of life changes. I, 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 I. And we try to rob God of his glory, even after conversion. Listen, if you're a believer in Christ, you didn't make changes in your life. You didn't do anything. You let God do those things. God did this. God did that. God did this. And you proclaim his name wherever you go so he gets the glory. So we don't kick back against that. Last week we proclaimed that it was all God, all grace. We like how that sounds, but do we really, really believe that? Second reason we don't want God to be sovereign over salvation it's because we think we need to help God out a little bit. We don't want to put God on the hook for not saving people. We need to help him out a little bit here. That would be very cruel. That would be very indifferent on God's part. This is, that's not the Sunday school God I learned about, right? We're not sending pictures home with your kids of God's wrath and judgment, right? We're not doing that. That's not the God we learned about. So let's help God out. No, he's not a part of that because that's not the God I know. It's not the God I learned about. So we want to protect God as if he needed to be protected by us. There's nothing that we can do. 
This is where we are in the text today. Because people want to scream out, does not seem fair. God, this does not seem fair that you would choose some and pass over others. And this is where Paul picks up in verses 14 through 18. You see Paul's pattern uh, through 9 and really even before that is he, he presents biblical truth and then he knows that you and I would have a lot of questions about what he just said. So then he answers the questions. He kind of phrases them in rhetorical things and then he gives an explanation. So there's this pattern over and over and over again. And here's what he did starting in really in chapter 9. Made a lot of promises to us, and he ultimately said that that the uh, he knew that the Jewish people were going to question the promises of God. God, you promised that all of Israel would be saved, that all of Israel would be saved, and yet now the Jews are rejecting Jesus. They're trying to kill everyone who preaches Jesus. Has God's word failed? Has God's promises failed? Paul said no. The promise was not to all the nation of Israel. It was individualistic. I didn't make it to everybody. It was made to individuals of election. Election being individual and not nationalistic. And then he starts to give us three examples of this. Because he last week, if you were here, he starts talking about Jacob and Esau, Isaac, Ishmael. He presents some very hard things. And he says... I chose Isaac. I didn't choose Ishmael. I chose Jacob. I did not choose Ishmael. So he starts to lay out this case of questions because you and I were going to push back on this. So he gives a defense of three generations to show it's individualistic and not nationalistic. First, he tells us about Abraham. Idol-worshiping, pagan, Mesopotamian, godless man, running away from God, not to God. God says, that's the one I want. I pick you, Abraham. And we're like, what? All right, well, it makes sense. Picks Abraham over all other people in the nation to represent his people. Wouldn't think you'd pick somebody like that, but that's what God does. He doesn't pick heroes. He picks people to make himself look good. Then Abraham has two sons. Ishmael and Isaac says, I'm going to bless the nation through Isaac, not through Ishmael. I'm going to choose Isaac, not choose Israel. I'm going to pass over Ishmael. Then Isaac grows, has two sons of his own with Rebekah. Same womb, twins, Jacob, Esau. And the text said that before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, that God chose Jacob and not Esau. He's laying out a defense, this case. And the simple fact that he is answering these questions and, and kind of getting out ahead of us, it lets me know with clarity that, that the election is not nationalistic. It's individualistic. If it was nationalistic, they would not have been asking these questions. Nobody would have had a problem with that. But the fact that it was individualistic is why they had questions, and is why you and me today have questions. We know ultimately, now listen, this is clear, this is clear, and this needs to be said. Ultimately, we know that we're dealing with Jacob and Isaac, that ultimately they were saved because they believed in Christ. All right? And then Ishmael, Ishmael and Esau were 
were condemned because they rejected Christ. All right, so get me on this. We need to make sure we're clear. But here's the deal. God decided who would choose Jesus and who would not. So there's some sovereignty of God in there, and there's some responsibility of man, but they were all guilty. All right? He knew it would question. He knew we would say, God, this is not fair. And, and God and Paul, through the text today, is going to say, listen, it's not about fairness. It's not about justice. It's about mercy. You don't want justice. You don't want fairness. It's about mercy. It's about compassion. All right, our bottom line today, Lord have mercy. Right, we say that, but Lord have mercy is what we're going to say today. Let's pray before we get in. Father, we love you. And Paul's words are hard. Not because they're unclear. They're painfully and evidently clear. But because they're difficult for our sometimes rebellious hearts to accept. We're curious people. We want to call you into account. We want to inquire. We try to investigate the Almighty. Forgive us for putting you on trial. You have a greater design in your word and a greater purpose that we will not see. So humble our hearts Teach us that we might see your grace and your mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, Romans 9, 14. And he just, remember, he just laid out individual election. He knew how people were going to respond. It's not fair. It's not just. And he gets out ahead of time and he says this. What shall we say then? What are you guys going to say? Is there injustice on God's part by no means emphatic exclamation point by no means is God unjust in what he does he is God he's always just he's always right and he's always good in everything that you do I know what you're thinking Paul says isn't Jesus an equal opportunity savior doesn't all people have the free choice to choose Jesus. Paul says no. Paul's, God's just because he, he's just because he, he could condemn all of us. We're all condemned to hell. He's just because he pours out mercy. Whatever he does is right and true. And I want to tell you why else this is a point. If Paul had said this, if Paul had said that Jacob and Isaac were saved, because of their free choice and their free decision to follow Jesus, to follow God, no one would have a problem with that. No one. Oh, that's why they, God saved them, because of something they did. They chose God. That's why they got saved. But that's not what happened, is it? Not what happened in the text. But because Paul and Jacob and Isaac were saved because God chose them, and Ishmael and Esau were saved because God didn't choose them, people's reaction would be immediately say to unfair, unjust. So Paul is going to give us his best defense to show you that he is just and he's merciful and that he is God. 
His best defense is the Bible. He is going to quote Exodus and go back to Scripture to not only show us that the theme of election is all the way through the Bible, but to simply say that God says it best. Paul is a plagiarist just like me. All we do is we take what God said and we say it. All right. So that's what Paul is doing here. He's making it clear that this is according to the Word of God. This is nothing new. So before you start firing your emails at me and pushing back, you're pushing back on Scripture, let me show you this in the Bible. And let's go, let's continue in Romans. This is a quote from, uh, from, from Exodus 33. And here's what he says, Romans 9, 15-16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I want to tell you the context of what just was written. God speaking to Moses. Moses had just returned. He had, uh, he had gone up on the mountain to hear God's revelation of the Ten Commandments. And then he looks down upon his people. And they are rejecting and rebelling against the God who just saved them. They're worshiping false idols, golden calves. Rebellious, rebellious. Moses comes down, has a meeting, rebukes the leaders and say, Remember the God who just saved you and you're already rebelling against me. He goes back up to the mountain, talk to God. I said, God, would you forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. Father, would you forgive all of these people for what they do? And Moses even said, you can blot my name out of the book if you'll just forgive them. All right? I love y'all, but I can't say I've prayed that for you. Okay? He's begging and pleading God, have mercy on them. And God says, I'll have mercy on who I have mercy on. And I will have compassion on who I have compassion on. God says, I'm not bound by your definition of fairness. I'm not constrained. I am free. I am sovereign. I owe you nothing. I will make the decision. I will will it according to my will, my purpose. I owe you nothing. My name, I am, I am not created, I am the creator. I just exist, is what God is saying. I owe you nothing. I will have compassion on who I want to have compassion on, and I will have mercy on who I want to have mercy. I am God, is what he says. Look at this passage in Romans eleven thirty six that speaks to who he is, that we just cannot comprehend who he is. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who could counsel God? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? He's saying, are you going to try to counsel God on what he wants to do with his sovereign choice of who he saves? Can you counsel him? Does God owe you something? What has man ever done for God that he would owe us anything? You see, this puts us in our place. 
when we think we have an argument against election, that would be that would presuppose that we have an, a claim to injustice. But we don't, do we? Because remember what justice is. Justice is that we all deserve to go to hell. That's justice. Ain't nobody in here crying out for that. No one's saying, justice. It's Lord have mercy is what we cry out for. We do not understand God. We don't see the picture of God. We don't see the fullness of who he is. God says it's my choice, not your choice. And let me tell you why that's good for you. It's a freeing thing. It's not meant to rob you of anything. Let me tell you why it's good. Because Romans 3 says that no one seeks for God. No one understands God. No one can please God. Cannot submit to God on your own. That's post-cross, by the way. That's after the cross. So we're in the new covenant. Paul reminds us. So left unchecked to ourself, no one would choose God. Because you don't have the ability to do it. Because of the sin and the rebellion in you. So I'm thankful that I don't have that choice. Second reason is if it was based upon our choice, it would be a reward and not grace. Grace, by definition, is unmerited. You can't earn it. So God doesn't say, you chose me, so now I'm going to have grace on you. That's not grace. It ceases to be grace at that point. It's unmerited favor. Now, the third reason that it's great that it's God's choice and not our choice is because not everybody has the full opportunity to respond to God. You could say, hey, it's not fair. I'll tell you what's not fair. It's not fair that the, the African tribe leader over in Africa who's never heard the gospel before, he never heard Jesus Christ, doesn't have the Bible. It's not fair that that guy doesn't get saved, but yet I've got six Bibles in my home and I've got great parents. It would be unfair that the guy in Africa would go to hell because he never heard Jesus. Wouldn't that be unfair? Absolutely. But Romans 1 says that everyone's accountable. doesn't matter where you're at. If you're in Africa or you're in Smyrna, Tennessee, then we're all going to be held accountable. So it would be very unfair for the person who's raised in a home, even in Smyrna, Tennessee, who has very unloving parents, abusive parents, broken homes, who never speak the name of Christ to their children. No opportunity there, right? And then on the other side, we have someone who has grown up in a Christian home. Their parents love the Lord. They got six Bibles, and they have all these advantages. So it would be unfair for us to have a free choice to choose God when other people don't have the same privileges. It's God's choice. And you got to remember what's fair, what's just, is that no one would choose God. He chooses. That's why in Paul said in this in verse 16, is it, doesn't, it doesn't depend on human will or exertion. You can't will your way to God. That means you can't choose God. That would be willing yourself to God. That's why there's no conditions upon the human will. It's called unconditional. There's nothing that man can do to will themselves to choose God. No white knuckling. No amount of church going. No amount of your serving the homeless. Giving blood. Giving your clothes to goodwill. Whatever you toss into that good deeds thing. 
No amount of human deeds or work or exertion will make you choose God. It is impossible. It requires God and God alone. Let me show you a passage. John 1, 12 through 13. Look at this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. So we have responsibility. We receive him. We believe in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. So if you think there for a second, okay, well, I believed in him. I received him. I did some stuff. Look here. You weren't born, not of the blood, not even the will of the flesh, not even the will of man, but, but of God. So you didn't will yourself to God. You did respond. You did receive. But you were not born into the kingdom of God by your own will. All right? And you need to understand this because some of you are trying to do that. There's no exertion in this. This is the most freeing thing to hear about your God. Let me tell you why it's so freeing. Because some of you are, are, are so busy. This is the true Christian. Some of you are so, so busy running around like a crazy person, chicken with your head cut off, trying to earn God's righteousness. And he said, I've already given it to you. You're trying to go here. You're trying to go there. You're trying to do this. You're doing that. You're trying to stop doing this, but start doing this. You're all over the place, and you're exhausting yourself. God says, you can't purchase what I've already purchased on the cross. Jesus paid it all. Right? We sing that song. Jesus paid it all. We don't sing, Jesus, you paid a portion. Jesus, thank you for playing your part. It's Jesus paid it all or he paid nothing at all. And you need to stop running around, exhausting yourself, trying to work for God's righteousness. It doesn't work. It leaves you tired. It leaves you exhausted. And I know some of you are in here. Maybe you came from a different denominational background where it's works, works, works. I gotta work, work, work for my righteousness. God says, No, you don't. Out of the understanding of grace that I imputed you righteousness, now you go work. But you do it out of joy, out of adoration, out of praise for the Almighty, not out of obligation, not out of fear or guilt. That is the gospel, people. That's the, in, the complete inversion of what the gospel means. And some of you here today who've never given your life to Christ, you've never said, Lord, have mercy. You are the brother, the sister that's trying to exert your will to God. I can will it. I'm going to get my kids in church. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to do a lot of good things so then I can stand before God and he will show me favor. Listen, I pray for you. Because you will stand before God naked, completely naked, figuratively. He will see and everything in your human heart, every thought you ever had, every sin you ever committed, every sin you ever thought about committing, completely naked. And you can't run and you cannot hide. No one's going to be standing next to you, not your spouse, not your pastor, no one will stand. You will stand alone. And you want to be at that moment clothed in the robe of righteousness. See, Jesus clothes your nakedness. And then God can't see your nakedness. 
For all that put their trust in Christ, Lord, have mercy. He covers your nakedness. And that is what we pray that you pray on this side of heaven. Because once you do it there, it's too late. That is what we pray that you do. That you cry out, Lord, have mercy. Let's keep going in the text. Paul's got more awesome scripture to give defense for his case. And he quotes Exodus 9.16 here. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. We'll come back to that in a moment. We just saw that doesn't sound passive, does it? It It doesn't sound like, passing over you I'm hardening right that's different we'll come back to that in just a moment notice how Paul did not say God has mercy on whomever chooses him oh if you choose me I'll have mercy but if you reject me I'm going to harden you he didn't say that did he he said I'm going to do whoever I will my will be done and he says it's not about fairness it's about purpose. He said that in verse, I think it's 17. He says, it's about my purpose. So what's going on here is there's a bigger purpose going on with election that you and I don't see. And that's why we question it. God's purpose in this specific text, he literally raised up Pharaoh, gave him blessings Rose him up in power. Looked like he had favor on Pharaoh. Raised him up. Why did he do that? So he could crush him. So that the world would look upon God and say, you are God. And God would be revealed. Even in his hardening of Pharaoh's heart, raising him up and crushing him, there was evangelistic purpose in that. He wanted his own name to be proclaimed throughout the world. Now see what happens is, is we don't see the big picture. It's kind of like if someone told you to go explain a movie, give a brief summary or give a long summary of a movie, and all you get is a millisecond. Just a glimpse, and you're done. Okay, explain that. There's no way you can explain that. Because you don't see the beginning and you don't see the end. You can't see in any of it to be able to explain what's going on. And that's what God is saying. I know the beginning. I know the end. You don't. You're a millisecond in eternity. And you cannot even come close to comprehending my purpose. And then even hardening of heart. Why would God harden someone's heart? We'll get into that a little bit more next week. Why would he do that? He's actively and deliberately hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And he did that first before Moses ever even got to Egypt. He said, listen, Moses, you're going there to free my people. By the way, Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to let him go. Moses, you know Moses like, what? Are you kidding me? I thought we were going to save them, God. Can't you just blow them up right now and and just blow them off the face of the earth and all the people would run free? Moses did not see the picture. Moses did not see the entire 50,000 foot view. So he questioned that. His purpose 
was so that his name would be made famous throughout the world. So even his destruction of Pharaoh and the wrath and judgment he poured out on Pharaoh was to make his own name famous. This is when we start to test that God is for God principle. Because God's not for Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a man. But God is for God. He's more for God. That's the one thing he loves more than man is his own glory. All right? And that's what we're seeing. And we'll get into that a little bit more next week. But I want to show you in this uh, how God's deliberately, uh, responsively, proactively hardening people for his purpose. All right? Think about Luke in the New Testament. Let's jump to the New Testament. Luke, parable, parable of the sower. Maybe you know the story. Uh, God shows up and there's a lot of people come to hear him talk. Jesus, a lot of people come to hear some great, great teaching. Jesus gets up and tells this story about some seeds and sowers and they threw some stuff down and you hear it, you get it, you don't, you don't. It just walks off. I'm paraphrasing, right? Doing it again. And the disciples come up to him and like, Jesus, what are you doing? They don't get it when you talk to them like that. Why are you talking to them like that? They're not going to understand what you're saying. Aren't we trying to save all of them? Jesus is like, nope. I'm trying to save my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they come. The people that don't hear it, it's because I don't want them to hear it. This is a common theme throughout the Bible. And I promise you, as you go through searching and seeing Scripture, you'll see this. It doesn't make complete sense to me. Why would God deliberately do that? Why would Jesus deliberately do that? Because I know above all things that he's for his own name and his own fame. And I also know this. All right, This is where we need to rest in all of these truths that every single person that is condemned to judgment and hell is all deserving of it. Every single person that goes to hell will not have a case, cannot claim injustice and not fair. Every single person. Anyone who cries out, Lord, have mercy, and really mean it and really understand what mercy is, will be saved. But the problem is this. Because of sin in our life, we can't cry out, Lord, have mercy, until God says, you need mercy. I'm calling you by name, and you need mercy. And then you cry out mercy because you see that you need to be saved. You see, not everybody wants to be saved in this world. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but not everybody wants to be saved. You don't know what you need to be saved from. You don't know God, and you don't have mercy. You're in a position of judgment, and I don't want you to be there. I don't want to scare you into submission, and I also know that my words can't make you will it. I just preached about that, right? There's no sermon I can give you that, man, I really hope they listen to me and they turn their hearts to God. I can't do that. And it's kind of freeing for me that it's in the hands of God. If God's doing that in you, man, you've got to respond. You do have to respond. Man has got to say, I surrender, I submit. And what the Bible says, what the God of the Bible says is that some will submit and some will not. The ones that God chooses, they'll submit. His success Ratio in salvation is 100% to date. And those who reject him are not God's failure. They're just not God's choice. That's hard stuff to listen to. And I know we got to wrestle with that. Life Point Church, we are going to preach the Bible. Okay? And uh, if it's in there, we're going to preach it. I love you too much to not 
preach it. And I want you to know that discipleship is reading tough things in the Bible and just being able to walk away and say, I just believe it because God said it. You may not understand it, but you're not going to kick against it. It's part of growing in Christ is that's just God. I, I, I don't have to agree with it. I don't have to understand it, but I'm not going to kick against it. I'm not going to fight God on who he is. And I, I surely, and I do believe that your, your commitment level to God, where you are in your Christian walk, is equated to your knowledge of God. I will say that. If you know, if you know fuzzy God, emotional God, may, you, might even be, uh, you might be a follower of Jesus and you know him from a surface level, that's going to be your, com- your commitment level to him. Surface level. I go to church on Sunday. See you next week. You'll, you'll try to give him a little slice of your pie. Put him in the corner, time out, Jesus, not right now. That's what you'll do. Your surface level commitment because you just have a glimpse of who God is. But as you turn back the veil and he starts to reveal himself to you and you say, reveal yourself to me, God, he will do that. Your commitment level and your growth in Christ will start to exponentially grow. I trust that, I believe it, and I want you to know the same thing. Let's pray. Father, we absolutely adore you for who you are. We know that everything that you do is right, is fair, is just, and it is even good because it's for you. Father, when we push back, when we kick back, Father, forgive us. We repent of that. We trust you fully. Help us to grow. Help us to to run deeper into your waters, to feel your embrace. Help us to taste the fullness of grace. Grace. Help us to understand it more. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.